and brought death into the world by your word. You called this spiritual life into being, this new birth that we have experienced. And Lord, one day, you will cause the dead to rise. As Jesus said, a time is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Father, we pray that you would make us ready for that day, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us insight and understanding, make us those who know you, those who live for you, and Lord, we pray that you would make us useful to your great name, your great cause in this generation. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. I would invite you to open to Genesis chapter 23 this morning, and I'm speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek here, but you've come to a funeral sermon today, because in Genesis 23, we are going to read of the death and burial of Abraham's beloved wife, Sarah. And and so with that in mind, I want to go ahead and front-load That is, tell you right out at the beginning what the application is. I want to tell you right here at the beginning how I hope and pray the Spirit of God will apply the Word of God to your heart such that you take action and begin to do these three things. Number one, in response to this sermon, in response to this text, really, Genesis 23, I hope that you'll come to funerals. Now I've got some sort of sub points here. I hope that... Uh, if if uh, you have loved ones who die while you're here, and if they live here, I hope you'll have the funeral here at Kenwood Baptist Church. It's much better than a funeral home, you know, low ceilings, bad music, much better to have it here. And, and it's a great opportunity. I think a funeral may be the best opportunity to have the gospel preached. So why come? Well, for one thing, Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. You come to funeral, you come to funerals to contemplate your death and to get ready. And you come to funerals to, to be there, to be used of God, to be a friendly face, perhaps a voice of comfort, perhaps a shoulder to cry on if it's not COVID, and, and help people to know God at that time. So Application number one, come to funerals. Application number two, get ready to die. Get ready to die. You are dying. You you will die. Unless Christ returns before the day comes, you will all die. Me too. We will all die. Number three, we need to do everything we can to help other people get ready to die. And I'll have more to say about those things as we get to them. Um, As we begin, I also want to state what I think um, Genesis 23 does in the broader context of the book of Genesis. Uh, The sermon is entitled, The Land at Last. And as you know, we've been looking at, at Abraham, and we've been looking at the way that God promised to Abraham land and seed and blessing. And we've seen God bless Abraham magnificently. We've seen how after 25 years of waiting, finally the Lord opens Sarah's womb and she gives birth to Isaac. And now at last, 
he gets some of the land. But all it is is a cave in which he will bury his wife. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. Like you finally receive the promise. You finally get what you were hoping for. You finally achieve what you worked so hard to gain. And it's a graveyard. That's what it is. That's the way this life goes a lot. I can remember one of my professors, one of Denny and I, this was, he was one of our favorite professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, John D. Hanna. And he said in class one day, he said, don't set your hopes too high on graduation. He said, if you're a married person, the woman that you argued with all the way to graduation will argue with you all the way home from graduation. That's the way this life goes. We work so hard for these things. We, we long for them. We, we yearn for them. We hope that, that, they'll, that our, all this will be realized. And then it comes to pass, and Abraham has finally a, a piece of ground in the land of promise, but it's a it's a cave in which he'll bury Sarah. So still, though, it matters. Why does it matter? It matters because God's word of promise creates a hope that will see us through death. That, that, I think the overarching message here is, yes, this purchase of ground matters, and yes, these people are going to insist on being buried in the land of Canaan. We see this with Abraham it, as we continue through the book. Isaac and Rebekah are going to be buried here, and, and Jacob is going to be, he's going, at the end of his life, he's going to give instructions to be buried here, and Joseph is going to be, give instructions that he also is to be buried there in the land of Canaan. Why? Because they've, they've got a hope that's going to see them through death, because they believe that God has promised them this land, and if they don't receive it in this life, they're going to receive it in the next, and We'll come back to this idea as we continue. But God's word of promise creates a hope that will see us through death. Okay, so if you're here and, and you're visiting and you're not identifying as a Christian, what we want you to hear is that there is a message from God that will change the way that you think about life so that you come to the conclusion that death is not the end of your experience. That there is a hope that God has made available that will see you through death and beyond death. That, I think that's what this chapter in part is about. So life in this world is glorious and invigorating, but it's also sad and frustrating. Sad because people we love die. Frustrating because promises that we hope for come to pass, but Abraham has a corpse on his hands when it comes to pass. And yet death is not the end. Uh, as, we, as we move through this passage, I'm going to draw attention to features of the passage that will help us to get our, get our hearts and minds around uh, what's going on in the passage. So in other words, I, I'm going to try to outline for you the structure of the passage as we go. Look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 23 and verses 1 and 2. And one thing before I read these two verses... I want to point out that Sarah's name is going to occur four times in these verses. So Genesis 23.1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. 
So Sarah is mentioned four times in those two verses. Her name will not be used again until verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife. And then you notice how in verse 2 there, we read of Hebron in the land of Canaan. And if you look down at verse 19, at the end of that verse, you have, again, same phrase, that is Hebron, in parentheses, in the land of Canaan. So you've got a bracket around this passage that uses Sarah's name and that refers to Hebron in the land of Canaan. And then in the intervening pieces, we're going to have matching elements as well. Let me just, here's the, here's the funeral oration part. Let me reflect with you for a moment on the life of Sarah. From various statements that are made in the book of Genesis, we are able to date Abraham's birth to 2166 B.C. That's when Abraham was born. And from Genesis 17, verse 14, we know that Abraham was 10 years older than Sarah, which means that she was born in 2156 B.C. She lived 127 years, placing her death at 2029 2029 B.C. Just a blip. The blink of an eye. I mean, if you think about, you know, 2000 B.C. to now 2020 A.D., her life was very short, wasn't it? And yet a long life, 127 years. Longer than, I, I dare say, longer than anyone in this room is going to live. I, don't th- I, I would be surprised if anyone in this room attains, reaches to the age of 127. That'll be a shocker if somebody does. None of us is going to live as long as Sarah. Sarah, we're told, um, we're told in Genesis 12, 4, that Abraham was 75 when the Lord called him out of Ur of the Chaldees to the land of Canaan. So you put this together. This means that Sarah was 65 when she left Ur, And she lived to be 127, which means that she lived longer in Ur of the Chaldees than she did in the land of promise. Which, if you think about that, I think it indicates that Sarah was... I mean, by the time you're 65, you know, your ways are kind of set. Your culture is pretty much ingrained in you. She was a Chaldean. She was a Chaldean woman who spent more of her life at home there in Ur of the Chaldees than she did in the land that God had promised to her. Only 62 years of her life were spent in Canaan. And you you remember, she would have been 65 when God said, to your seed I will give this land to Abraham in Genesis 12, 7. And then 11 years later, Abraham's 86, she's 76. No child has come along. And so they come up with this plan to bring about the birth of Ishmael. I mean, we don't know what took place prior to her being called out of Ur. We don't know what their life would have been like. But we know from reading Genesis chapter 16 that that was a rough patch in their marriage. That was a difficult season in their marriage. She was upset with it. She came up with this plan. She was upset with her husband after it was brought to pass. And then Ishmael and Hagar continued to live with Abraham and Sarah until, until the birth of Isaac. So Ishmael was 13 um, when he was circumcised in Genesis 17. Abraham would have been 99, Sarah 89. And then a year later, Isaac was born. When Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. 
And then Sarah lived another 37 years, which means that Sarah got to watch Isaac grow up until he was 37, and then she died. Later in Genesis, we're told, Genesis chapter 24, in fact, we're told that Isaac was 40 when he married Rebekah, which means that Sarah died before seeing Isaac married to Rebekah, which means she never saw her grandchildren by her son. And then, you know, if, if you think about what the New Testament tells us about Sarah and what, what the rest of the, the... She's mentioned one place outside of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament, Isaiah 51, where really Isaiah there is calling the people of Israel to look to the faith of Abraham and Sarah. And then in the New Testament, she's mentioned in Romans 9, verse 9, Hebrews 11, verse 11, and in both cases, what's emphasized there is her reception of the promise and her belief in the promise. So, you know, think about all the things that people go through. People, people we, we hope for different things. We, we attempt different things. We have different things going on in our lives. I mean, you, you know, right now we're in the midst of an election season. A lot of people are thinking about the, the candidates and the outcome of the election and all the rest. I'm sure there were those kinds of things in Sarah's life. After Abraham went chasing after that, that, you know, those kings in Genesis 14 to rescue Lot, I would imagine that Sarah had some political concerns about whether those kings were going to come back, you know, and, and, and seek vengeance on Abraham for putting them to flight. I would imagine that the, some of the things that we're going to read about here have to do with the Canaanites, the people of the land. I would imagine that there were some difficulties that Sarah had with the Canaanites, some, some political concerns that she had, and yet, at the end of her life, none of that is mentioned. And, and in retrospect, in the Bible on her life, she received the promise, and she believed. And then 1 Peter 3, she obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. That's what we know about her. She, she received the promise, she believed the promise, and she submitted to her husband. She was a good wife. She's exemplary in that way. That's what we, so what I, the point I'm making here is death has a way of saying to us there are things that matter and there are things that don't matter at all. Recently, I did a, a funeral here. And, and one of the things that struck me as I talked with the family, maybe I mentioned this in a recent sermon, one of the things that struck me as I talked with the family was the way that nobody mentioned material things. I mean, this guy, this guy was a musician. I was thinking about this this morning. The guy that we, that we buried was a musician, and nobody told me what kind of guitar he had. I mean, I, you know, I would imagine that people that are into music, they, 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 they aspire to having a nicer instrument. You know, we, we, we so easily fall into material concerns. Nobody mentioned to me what kind of guitar he had. Nobody mentioned to me what kind of car he drove. Nobody mentioned to me any of the things that take up so much of our concern in our lives. There are things that matter and there are things that don't. And so I think as we consider Sarah's death, we have the opportunity, opportunity to ask ourselves, am I ready to die? Am I ready for, for my heart to stop beating, for the brain waves to go flat, the, the recent funeral that we had, I saw a picture of 
of that man, and he was, he was so alive. And then right here in front of me was his casket. And, you know, it's like a, it's like a balloon that's deflated, and there's nothing giving roundness to the flesh. It's just draped there over the skeleton. Death is shocking. Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And then verse 3, and Abraham rose up from before his dead. This, this, is, gonna, this is the way that Sarah is going to be referred to between verses 3 and 18, before her name is finally used again in verse 19. In between there, again and again and again, she's going to be referred to as Abraham's dead. His dead, your dead, my dead. Again, she's just dead. And then let me draw your attention to the way that uh, in verse 3 there it says, Abraham rose up. And then just drop your eyes down to verse 7. It says, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And then down in verse 12, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And then uh, if you're looking at this in English, it's not as apparent, but in verse 17, when it says, so the field of Ephron, and then at the end of the verse, it says, was made over to Abraham. And then again in verse 20, when it says, the field and the cave were made over to Abraham, literally what it says is, so the field rose up to Abraham. So these instances of, of Abraham rising up and the field rising up, these are sort of marking, this is the repetition of that phrase is the way that the author of the text, Moses, has sort of marked the units of thought through the phrase, or through, through the passage. He's, he's using that phrase like punctuation. So verse 3, Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, and um, don't, don't, when, when you run into a name like this, don't first go to like world history or, or extra biblical sources to try to figure out who the Hittites are. You should first go back to Genesis 10, the table of nations, because this is, this is what Moses is thinking about. Who are the Hittites? And if you look back to chapter 10 in verse 15, we read that Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And Heth is the father of the Hittites. In fact, all through this passage, what they render as the Hittites is literally rendered again and again and again, the sons of Heth. That's who we're dealing with. So these guys are Canaanites. And the reason this is important is because it colors our understanding of who these guys are. Because Noah said in Genesis 9, cursed be Canaan. And God said to Abraham, uh, whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless. Whoever dishonors you, I will curse. And so Abraham now has to interact with the cursed descendants of Canaan, the Hittites. And in verse 4, he says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. And I, I want to offer you a different kind of understanding of this. The, the, the Hebrew term that's rendered foreigner here is a term that, that, that derives from the word for sit. And if you sit somewhat, somewhere long enough, you dwell there. So you could say, I'm a sojourner and a squatter here. You know, in our, in our culture, a squatter is someone who doesn't own the place. He just sort of moved in and made a home for himself. That's who Abraham is. Abraham's a squatter in the land. This is, this is not a place of honor. Abraham is acknowledging to these guys, I don't own property here. 
I don't come from this place. I, I'm a sojourner. I, I, don't, I don't belong with you. This is not my homeland. Uh, at the end of the passage, the, the, the match for this, the answer for this, is that Abraham is going to acquire from the Hittites a, a, a piece of property. Down in, in verse 17, when the field arose to Abraham, the field was made over to Abraham. And in verse 18, it says that it was his acquisition. It was his possession. The ESV renders it there in verse 18. So Abraham starts out as a sojourner and a squatter. And at the end, in verse 18, he has a possession in the land. But it's, it's not the kind of possession that you would rejoice over, is it? So he says there in verse 4, I'm a sojourner and foreigner, a squatter among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. It's very significant that Abraham is going to bury his dead and not like put her on a funeral pyre and have her consumed by the flames. Uh, if you noticed in the call to worship uh, in Isaiah, 26.19, Isaiah speaks of the earth giving birth to the dead. And this, this, all of this assumes the idea that the dead are going to be buried in the ground. And these, these concepts, this is why throughout the history of Christianity, Christians have preferred to be buried as opposed to having their bodies disposed of in some other way. Now, in the, in the end of all things, Revelation tells us that the sea is going to give up its dead. and it, So God is going to raise the dead from whatever has happened to their bodies. But the Christian idea, and you can see this in 1 Corinthians 15, is that when you put a body in the ground, what you're doing is you're planting a seed. You're planting a seed, and in the same way that Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it, is a, it abideth alone. But if... It dies, it brings forth much fruit. And Jesus is talking about his own death and resurrection. We believe that the body is going to be planted in the ground and then life is going to come when God raises the dead. This is why, historically, Christians have preferred to bury their corpses. So, you know, all other things being equal, I would commend burial as opposed to other methods of disposing of the dead. Verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. And this is going to be answered down in verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 16, when it says, you could render this, Abraham heard Ephron. He, he, he listened. So, so these are sort of matching elements. So they say, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. I know that there are many people in this room who would love, I mean, this is true of all of us, really. If we'll, if we'll be honest with ourselves, we would love to have the culture, to have the world look at us and say, you are a prince of God. What a, what a great person you are. And death puts things in perspective for us, doesn't it? We would all love the acclaim of the world, like Abraham receives here. The, the sons of Heth, the Canaanites, are acclaiming Abraham for his greatness. And it's irrelevant 
to him. He is not at all concerned with their opinion of him. And this goes to the, the, the reception of the promise too, doesn't it? He, he's finally got a, he's getting a plot of ground. But don't you think he'd rather have Sarah alive? I think probably so. I think he'd probably rather have Sarah alive than get that plot of ground. I think he'd probably have, rather have Sarah alive than have the, 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 Heth, the Hethites, the Hittites, the Canaanites say, you are a prince of God among us. And we need to bear this in mind as we face decisions about what career we're going to pursue, about how we're going to pursue that career, about what kinds of compromises we might be called upon to make, about what kind of ambitions we set out to achieve. Death is the great bringer of perspective. And, and what we've learned about Abraham is we've seen the Lord say to him, Genesis 15:1, do not fear, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. And, and I submit to you that if you don't get to a place where that's what you live for, you will never have satisfaction in this life. We, we all have to come to the place where what matters to us is the Lord, where we find our satisfaction in him, where we, we are enabled by his grace and we rely on the supply of, of joy and of refreshment and of, of, of truth and life that we get from communion with God. You've got to get to the place where that's what you live for because anything else that you live for is going to let you down. If you live for the acclaim of the world, you will reach a place where that doesn't matter for you at all. If you live for the acquisition of property, things are going to happen that will relativize the joy that you receive from that acquisition. If you live to, to receive a certain kind of relationship, whether that's you want really badly to get married or you want really badly to have children, the words of John D. Hanna will ring true in your life. The person that you argued with all the way to the altar will argue with you all the way home. You're going to find that's just a human being. And it's great, but we're made for the infinite God. And anything less is going to fail us. We've got to live. We've got to live the way that Psalm 73 speaks when the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. There's nothing else for us in heaven. There's nothing else for us on earth but God, the strength of our heart and our portion forever. So the acclaim of the Hittites, this is irrelevant at this point. They say, None of us will hold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. And then, so verses 1 through 6 are kind of the first unit there, and, and I've pointed to the ways that later in the passage there are going to be correspondences to this. Verse 7 starts the next unit of the passage, the next section of the text. And in this passage, Abraham is going to, to talk first in verses 7 through 9, and then Ephron the Hittite is going to answer Abraham. 
So verse 7, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. I don't think this should be construed as some kind of act of worship. I think it's just a sort of cultural expression of respect. He bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. Verse 8, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. Again and again, this hear me is going to echo through the passage. We saw it in verse 5, and now here it is again in verse 8. Hear me and entreat from me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. And Ephron, verse 10, was sitting among the sons of Heth, the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. Now Moses is taking pains to tell us that Abraham is insisting on paying full price and that this is being heard in the hearing of everybody going in and out through the gate of the city because this is an official transaction that's going to take place. And the fact that it happens in the hearing of everyone that goes in and out at the gate of the city, a phrase that's going to be repeated from verse 10 down in verse 18, to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gates of the city, because that's where you transact business. I mean, it's almost like the deed was registered at City Hall. This is actually Abraham's property. It was officially conducted. It was legally contracted. Everything was carried out in accordance with with regulations. So Ephron says in verse 11, No, my Lord, here it is again, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. Now, this is where I think that the information that the sons of Heth are descendants of Canaan comes into play. And and if if you remember, you know, there are these narratives in Genesis that that you might look at and you might think, why is this stuff about these wells here? Well, the stuff in there about those wells is there to show that Abraham digs a well and finds water, and then here comes Abimelech's troops to claim that well. Or in Isaac's day, you know, a well that Abraham has dug that is a useful thing, it's providing water. Well, these these Canaanites, the Philistines, they have come in and they've filled up those wells. The point is, these are not... These are not loving people. These are not benevolent people. These are people who don't know God. They don't know the God of the Bible. They are worshiping false gods. And Abraham is wise not to trust them. If if a person who worships a false god wants to give you a gift, I think you should be suspicious. You are wise to be suspicious. You are wise to think that gift is probably going to come with strings attached. Or, you're giving me this gift now, but a day might come when you want to to take that gift back. And so, I would rather conduct this lawfully. I would rather pay you the full price. I think that's what we see here with Abraham. He doesn't trust these guys. And, and, death is the great great, um, perspective bringer. What does money mean to Abraham now? What does he need to be frugal for? He's got, even if he pays an exorbitant amount for this cave, there will be plenty left over to leave to Isaac. Money is irrelevant to him. So Ephron, he wants to give the cave. 
He says, in the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Verse 12, this is the new unit. So Abraham spoke, now Ephron spoke. Now here's Abraham speaking again, and Ephron's going to answer in verse 12. This is sort of the middle of the passage. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me. So it's like, you listen to me. No, 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 you listen to me. No, you listen to me. No, 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 you listen to me. If you will hear me, I give the price of the field. So this is direct answer to Ephron. I give you the field. Abraham says, no, 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 you listen to me. I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham. Now, you know, it's, it's hard to establish exactly how this goes because we really don't have comparable transactions. We, we don't have analogous plots of ground and prices so that we can compare. But I think the thing is worded such that you get the impression that Ephron was happy to take advantage of Abraham. So I'm going to read it that way. You know, I could be wrong about that. This could be a very fair price. I don't know. But I'm inclined to think that these, these descendants of Canaan, the sons of Heth, were, were probably not the kind of people that were going to give you a bargain price, especially in a moment of need when you clearly want the thing it, that, that they have to sell you. So verse 14, Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord... Listen to me, hear me again. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. So I th- I, I'm inclined to think that, that Ephron has named a price that is out of all proportion to the value of the land. And I'm inclined to think that Abraham doesn't care because, because Sarah is dead. And because Abraham knows what's really valuable in life. And it's, it's, it's a matter of wisdom for us. You know, there, there are times when we need to be frugal so that we can make sure that the resources that we have stretch to cover the needs that we have. There are other times when such frugality is not essential to survival and we need to recognize that the relationship that we're in matters more than the money that this might cost. And that's okay. That's okay. We're still living for the promise. We're still leveraging everything that we have for the kingdom of God. We're, we're just rightly prioritizing what's going on in our lives. So verse 16, Abraham heard. He listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver. He shekeled it out to him. You know, he... He weighed the the amounts. This is not a day when they have a fixed currency that all looks the same because they have these modern mints, you know, that mash up these uh, alloys and things and that print these perfectly. No, uh, you've got weight. And so he's weighed out the silver for Ephron that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. Verse 17, so the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, 
The field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over. And again, the field rose up to Abraham, marking the final unit of the passage. That, that expression happens at the beginning in verse 17 and at the end in verse 20, bracketing this final unit, signifying that Abraham at last has a portion of ground in the land of Canaan. And, and I've talked about this. I mean, I've, you've, you've heard from me, the reception of the promise. I, I suspect that it sort of felt like dust in his mouth. That, that now I finally got a piece of this ground that was promised to me, but I'm going to bury my wife there. And that, that's all it is, is a, a tomb for her. This is not what we hope for. We hope to to live in this land together, to use language from the rest of the Bible. We hope to sit under our own vine and under our own fig tree and have no one make us afraid in this, this land of promise that, that we hoped would be a renewal of the realm of life where, where we would dwell with God. And now she's dead. And this, I think this passage is telling us don't live for this life. You, you, you cannot set your ultimate hopes on this life. If you do, they will be dashed. You can just count on it. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be frustrated. You're not going to get what you want. You should just get used to that. You should get used to not getting what you want and rejoicing anyway. That's the secret of life. The secret of life is, yeah, there are a lot of things that I wish would be different. There are a lot of promise that I, that I wish that I had in their fullness. It ain't happening in this life. So there are two ways before you, two ways of responding to that reality. You can either live in growing frustration and bitterness and resentment and, and blaming everyone around you and calling everyone to account and, and all the rest, or you can say, God has been so good to me. And through these tears of mourning for Sarah, I will hope in him. And with Paul, I have learned to be content in every circumstance. Paul describes himself as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. And as I was thinking about this passage, that's the phrase that just kept coming back to my, to my head. Paul saying that he's sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. You think about the life of the Apostle Paul beaten all those times, all those shipwrecks, all that heartache, all that concern for the churches, all those false teachers, sorrowful, concerned about many things, fightings without, fears within, always rejoicing, always giving thanks, always in prayer. That's the secret of life. Death, death puts things in perspective. Death, death puts the honor of the Hittites in perspective. Death puts the price of the land in perspective. And the purchase of the land in the face of death points to a hope for the possession of the land beyond death, a hope for resurrection. So let me just offer you this sort of thought experiment if death is the end, why bother with a grave? 
If death is the end, why bother with the purchase of land? If death is final, who cares where she's buried? It doesn't matter. But if there's a resurrection, yes, then bury the body in the purchased land. If there's a resurrection, the land matters, the body matters, the burial matters, and the conduct on the way to the moment when you expire matters. It all matters if there's a resurrection. And Abraham's, we can, we can sort of put side by side, Abraham's causes for sorrow and his causes for joy, can't we? Cause for joy. Fulfillment of the promise. Now at last he has some promised land. Death. He's acquired this land legally. It's a grave. In a way, the nations are calling him blessed. And yet they're going to extort him for the cost of the land. So Abraham receives the land in verse 18 there as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, her name again at last, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. In the construction of this narrative, you know, we talked, we talked in a previous uh, sermon about how chapters 12 through 22 sort of form a unit um, with that genealogy at the end of 22 um, bracketing that unit with the genealogy that's at the end of chapter 11. Here, you've got the death of Sarah before, I, before Isaac gets married. And then in chapter 24, Isaac's going to marry Rebekah. And then in chapter 25, Abraham's going to die. It's as though the death of his parents are cradling the marriage through which the seed of promise will continue. It's as though by the structure of the narrative, Moses is saying, yes, these lives are significant, but what's important is the seed of promise. And that line of descent continues until the coming of the Lord Jesus himself. And that, ultimately, is what gives meaning to the lives of Abraham and Sarah. And if you want your life to have ultimate meaning, you need to find it in the seed of promise, the Lord Jesus. You need to find it in the way that your life adds to the coming of that seed. And so, this, this is my application you need to get ready to die because you're going to stand, you're going to be raised, and you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus, whom, as we are about to confess, will be the judge of the living and the dead. And that means that everybody, everybody you know is also going to stand before that judge. So you need to get ready to stand before him, and you need to help everybody in your life get ready to stand before him. Can you imagine facing death without Christ? I, I, don't, I don't know if, if you all are familiar with uh, Bill and Kelly Housley that our church has been supporting for years as they've gone to Papua New Guinea. They went to an unreached tribe. I vividly remember hear, hearing, reading 
Kelly Housley describe the death wails of those people in that tribe before they heard the gospel. We're talking about people who mourn without hope. Death in that kind of situation is, is a horrific terror, the likes of which those who have a hope of resurrection will never know. And there are so many people in the world facing that kind of death. So, you know, yesterday we had this virtual visit with our friends who are serving in Central Asia. It was magnificent. I don't know if they recorded that thing. If they did, I hope the link is made available. I hope you'll go listen to it. I hope you'll go... I was driving for part of the time, so... Parts of the time, they had these testimonies from these Turkish pastors, and they had the text translated on the screen. I'm gonna, I, I hope to go get access to this video and read the testimony of those pastors. And, and I hope that in your heart, there is a readiness to do your part for the cause of the, the task of making disciples right here at Kenwood Baptist Church, and then for the way that that plays into the task of making disciples of all nations. There are, there are all nations right here in Louisville. There are ways for us to pursue this right here at Kenwood. It starts with us, being, with us pursuing church health. It starts with you pursuing spiritual health in your own work, walk with God. And then it starts with, it, it moves out from there to good relationships in your family and good relationships in your small group and, and healthy love communicated throughout this church so that we're an evangelistic magnet. And then hopefully that spills out to evangelism in the neighborhood and around the world. And, and listen, we, we, we want to be a church that's able to say, we got a, we got a, we got a worker in Russia, we want to send a team to go encourage that worker in Russia. We got a team in Central Asia, we want to send a team to go encourage those people in Central Asia. That takes cash. So every time you contribute to the work of the ministry here at Kenwood, you are contributing to that. That's, we, we should give sacrificially. We should leverage everything that we have for the gospel. And every time we think, is it worth it? Is it worth it for me to make this financial sacrifice? Is it worth it for me to, to take off two weeks of work and be one of the people that goes on one of these trips? Is it worth it for me to give from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on a Saturday to be present to learn about what's going on with this team of missionaries that we support? Is it worth it? You just remind yourself. We're talking about people that are going to die without Christ. We're talking about people that unless they hear the gospel, they are going to face the everlasting wrath of the almighty God whom they have offended by their transgressions. That's what we're talking about. And so then again, when you face that question, is it worth it for me to potentially have this very awkward conversation with this person that I'm speaking with, that I'm in a relationship with? Is it worth it for me to risk inviting them to church? Is it worth it for me to risk Telling them they need Jesus. Is it worth it for me to say to them, would you like to get together with me on a regular basis and read the Bible together? You just think again. If they are not right with God, they face Him in judgment. Don't live for this life. 
Sarah, I think, from this passage, we can say that she lived a pretty ordinary life. She walked with her husband. She went where he led their family. She heard God's promises and believed God's promises. She gave birth to the seed of promise. She walked with God. May we do likewise. May, may we help others get ready to die and thereby be ready to die ourselves. And when it's time for the funerals to happen, we gather together as a family. And we love the people that we're with. And we walk with one another all the way to the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account of Sarah's death. Lord, we thank you for the hope that comes from the fact that Christ rose from the dead. It comes from the fact that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Lord, we thank you for the hope that because he has been raised, the scriptures can tell us that we will be raised. And Lord, we thank you for the good news that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that, that you love mercy, that you are a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus instructed his disciples that others would know that we were his disciples by the way that we love one another. Lord, would you do more among us than we can ask or think? Would you make us an evangelistic magnet? Would you fill this room with people to overflowing? People who are ready to go out and go to the nations. People who are going to flood the campus of the University of Louisville with the message of the gospel. People who are going to go out and pastor other churches. People who are going to stay here. So that we can hold hands together as we take our final steps into the icy river across which lies the city of God. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the church. We thank you for the joy of walking together. We pray that you would be honored by us. We pray that your spirit would make it so in us. And we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, whoever lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, world without end. Amen.